When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. If you love the Intelligence Squared podcast, you can support the show and help us do what we do by hitting subscribe via Apple Podcasts. And in return, you'll get bonus content, ad-free listening, and early episodes too. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. For this week's Sunday debate, we're dipping back into the archive to 2014, when we gathered a panel of expert historians to debate whether Britain was right to fight in the First World War, a tragedy that laid the foundations for decades of destructive upheaval and violence across Europe. Britain's involvement in the First World War, a conflict that cost the lives of over 886,000 British military personnel, has been questioned throughout the 20th and 21st century by academics. Back in 2014, it was a timely topic once again, with that year marking 100 years since the conflict first began in 1914. To debate the issue, we invited leading historians Margaret Macmillan, Max Hastings, John Charmley and Dominic Sandbrook to an event hosted by journalist, columnist and national security expert Edward Lucas. Here's Edward with more. Well, thanks very much indeed, and thank you all for coming. I think this is one of the most sold-out uh, events that we've, we've had. I don't think there's a single spare seat in the House. And it's a very topical subject, this combination of militarism and miscalculation, which we see now unfolding in Ukraine and uh, other parts of the former Soviet Union, um, have awful echoes of gunshots in, in, in Sarajevo and the cataclysm that they um, brought about, but we're not here to talk about the origins of the Second World, of the First World War, and we're not also not going to talk about who's to blame. We're not going to talk about whether you should have hung the Kaiser or whether the Versailles Treaty um, laid the foundations of the Second World War. And we're not going to do any alternative history prior to 1914. So if you're dying to come up with your theory about how the Agadir crisis was mishandled or the role of the First, Second and Third Balkan Wars, save it for the discussion in the bar afterwards. We're going to stick strictly, strictly, to, and I'm sure with this audience you'll find a receptive, receptive uh, um, listener for any, any theory you have. Um, but we're going to stick strictly to the motion that Britain should not have fought in the First World War. Um, you've all got your voting cards uh, for, for, for later on and you, you'll get a chance to express your view once you've had a chance to listen to the, to the, to the, to the panel. Um, each speaker is going to speak for nine or ten minutes and then we're going to turn it over to the floor and I encourage you to polish your 
thoughts so you can make a really pithy intervention. It's always better to have ones that are dazzling rather than ones that are comprehensive. And, uh, <laughs> and I, will, I will be quite ruthless. If, you, if any, anyone who produces a bit of paper and reads from it will get shut up. Not, not, not the speakers here, of course. That, that's different. Um, so we'll have, a, we'll have a brisk interchange from, from the floor and discussion on the panel. And then you'll vote. We'll have closing speeches. And then I'll um, announce the result. But you've come to hear the panel, not me. So without further ado, I'm going to ask Dominic Sandbrook to go to the podium. He's a historian, columnist and broadcaster. He's best known for his acclaimed series of four books on post-war Britain, notably Seasons in the Sun, as well as his BBC television series on the 1970s and the Cold War. He's a regular book reviewer for the Sunday Times. Please welcome Dominic Sandbrook. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Ladies and gentlemen, you probably expect me to open with a tragic, tear-jerking story. A young man far from home, bleeding to death on a foreign field. His anxious mother watching for the postman's heavy tread, the telegram and the tears. But tonight, Professor Charmley and I will advance a case based not on emotion, but on hard historical fact. We will leave the sensationalism and the sentimentality to our opponents. (laughs) What we will show very simply is that Britain's participation in the First World War was a terrible mistake. I'm not a pacifist, and I am a patriot. When Britain fights wars, I want us to win. But victory in the First World War came at, frankly, too high a cost. In human life, we lost more than 700,000 men. In broken bodies, no fewer than 41,000 British soldiers returned home without an arm or a leg. In shattered mines, some 65,000 men were given disability pensions for severe shell shock, and that is probably a gross understatement. And there were other deeper costs. We went from being the world's biggest creditors to one of its greatest debtors. Hobbled by inflation and unemployment, we lost forever our position as the world's greatest economic and financial superpower. And in the end, we lost the one thing that our young men were told they were fighting for, our empire. It is no wonder that by the 1930s, when we'd already lost Ireland and were about to lose India, so many people believed that the First World War had been for nothing. Professor Charmley and I are not here to lecture you about the morality of wars or indeed to talk about who was responsible for this one. Our case is simply this, that once Austria, Serbia, Russia, Germany and France had taken up arms, we in Britain should have stayed on the sidelines and let them fight it out. Our opponents will try to persuade you that all the suffering, all the sacrifice was somehow worth it. They will paint a picture of a rapacious Germany stamping across the map of Europe led by a militaristic madman. And they will claim that we in Britain were leading a moral crusade, fighting for freedom and democracy. Now, Max Hastings and Margaret Macmillan are two of our finest historians, and I admire them enormously. But in this case, I'm sad to say they are mistaken. (laughs) Let's start with the Germans. Now, we're going to hear a lot about the Germans tonight, but I urge you to see through the xenophobic cliches and to concentrate on the historical facts. 
Germany had only come into being in 1871. We often see it as a kind of Victorian Sparta, all peaked helmets and bristling moustaches. But the reality was very different. Take the Kaiser, for example. He wasn't an absolute monarch, and he certainly wasn't a dictator. Yes, Queen Victoria's grandson was a braggart and a bully. But as his most distinguished and up-to-date biographer, the Cambridge professor Christopher Clarke, has shown beyond question the Kaiser never really wanted war. Wilhelm II always believed that the quarrel between Austria and Serbia would be a purely local affair. And when it looked as if the Russians would intervene, he tried to pull the Austrians back from the brink of all-out invasion. Wilhelm liked to moan and groan about his British and Russian cousins, but when he heard that Britain had declared war, he was devastated. To think that George and Nicky should have played me false, he famously said. If my grandmother had been alive, she would never have allowed it. (laughs) Our opponents will tell you that German militarism was a deadly threat, not just to Britain, but to European civilization. But you know what? In 1914, the German army boasted 761,000 men, well behind the French, 827,000, and the Russians, 1.4 million. Do you know how many wars Germany had fought by 1914? One, in southwest Africa. In the same period, Britain had fought in the Gold Coast and in the Zulu War and in Egypt and in the Sudan and in two Boer Wars where we'd invented the concentration camp. So if an outside observer had been asked to pick out the battle-crazed imperialists, somehow I don't think he'd have picked the Germans. After all, the Kaiser's Germany had the biggest socialist party in Europe, its strongest trade unions and its most developed welfare state. In 1900, 22% of German men were entitled to vote, and in Britain, 18%. So it's a very strange claim that we were fighting for democracy against a country that was actually more democratic than we were. And when you look closely at our allies, the idea of the First World War as a moral crusade evaporates completely. First, there was France, proportionately the most militaristic country in Europe, bitter, brooding, itching for a rematch with the Germans after the debacle of 1870. Then Russia. Let's take a moment to ask ourselves, how on, how on earth could we have been fighting a crusade for freedom and democracy, shoulder to shoulder with Tsarist Russia, then one of the most violent reactionary and repressive regimes on the planet. You know, Mr. Chairman, when British newspapers needed pictures to accompany their grossly embellished stories of German crimes in Belgium, they used photos of anti-Semitic pogroms carried out by the Russian government. That, I think, rather says it all. Then there was plucky little Serbia, a country that had launched two wars of conquest in the Balkans in 1912 and 1913, a country whose nationalist paramilitaries had raped and murdered their way across Albania and Macedonia, a country that had been sponsoring terrorist atrocities for years. (laughs) And finally, brave little Belgium, the country that had killed 10 million people in the Congo. (laughs) Is it really 10 minutes? I'd say 11. 11. uh, I shall wrap up. Mr Chairman... In a few moments, Max and Margaret will paint you an elegant, entertaining, and alas, 
a largely fictional portrait of an alternative Europe if we had stayed out and let the Germans win. Of course, we can't know exactly what would have happened if we had stayed on the sidelines, but we do know what would have happened, Mr Chairman, when we went in. Ypres, Passchendaele, the Somme, the Russian Revolution, the rise of Stalin, Hitler and the Holocaust. That, ladies and gentlemen, is what we got by going in. So I'll leave you with this simple question. Do you really think that any alternative could really have been worse? Thank you. Thanks, thanks very much indeed, um, Dominic. And now it's over to Sir Max Hastings, historian, journalist, former newspaper editor, author of 20 books. His latest is Catastrophe, Europe Goes to War, 1914. He's also writing and presenting a BBC Two documentary on the outbreak of war and will be a key figure in the centenary events in 2014. Please welcome Sir Max Hastings. Every great historical event becomes shrouded in myths and legends, and few more so than 1914, that summer whose sunlit moments, because there was plenty of rain too, um, mocked mankind by providing the setting for the outbreak of the first of the 20th century's huge calamities. Dominic has just advanced a case that there was no reason why the local difficulty on the continent need have had anything to do with us. He is among those who cherish what I suggest is a popular delusion, that the two global conflicts belong to different moral orders, that where 1939-45 for Britain was a good war, 1914-18 was a bad one, though John Charmley goes a long stride further, believing that we could have stayed out of both struggles. The British people have always had a vivid idea of what they think happened in World War II, until 1941, we defied the vast evil of Nazism alone, and then we defeated Hitler with a touch of help from the Red Army and the United States. <laughs> um, the struggle was nothing like as bloody as its predecessor, so people kid themselves, uh, because we had better generals who understood that our soldiers shouldn't be allowed to become futile sacrifices. But our ideas about the First World War are thoroughly confused. Some of those involved... Uh, in organising this year's commemoration of 1914-18, seem eager to make discussion of the cause for which the struggle was fought as vague as possible, to make the theme of this year regret and even apology. Tonight, Margaret and I are going to suggest to you a different view, that while the war was assuredly a colossal tragedy, it's a huge mistake to confuse depiction of its horrors, as Dominic has just done, uh, with argument about why it was necessary to fight. We believe that there was a cause at stake, that Britain couldn't plausibly have remained neutral while Germany secured hegemony over the continent. Neil Ferguson has written in perfect seriousness, and perhaps Dominic agrees with him, that a German victory would simply have created something like the European Union half a century earlier, <laughs> that we, the British, could have remained rich and unbloodied bystanders, to some of us, this sounds not merely sensationalist, but frivolous. More serious historians, including some of the best German ones, see the 1914 Kaiserreich as a militarised autocracy whose victory would have been a disaster. 
Dominic's absolutely correct that in 1914 Germany had the largest socialist party in Europe. But Germany's tragedy was that that socialist party, which was devoutly anti-militaristic, had no power whatsoever over the vital issues of war and peace, which were entirely decided by the Kaiser, his nominated chancellor and his nominated generals. Though it's quite mistaken to equate Wilhelm's Germany with that of Hitler, we submit that Western civilization has almost as much reason to be grateful that the Allies prevailed in 1918 as in 1945, despite the appalling cost, and even if the outcome of the first clash proved to have a tragic impermanence, because Germany had to be fought all over again a generation later. And although Berlin, in my view, bore a heavy responsibility for the Continental War in 1914, our debate tonight is not about that. It addresses the narrower and separate, although of course related, issue of whether Britain could credibly have stayed out once a continental struggle became ordained. Throughout the so-called July crisis, much of the Liberal Party and indeed most of the British people opposed involvement in Europe's looming war. They had no sympathy for either Serbia or Russia. Some indeed had a real fellow feeling towards Germany and its culture. In July, old Lady Londersborough, the first Duke of Wellington's great-niece, told Osbert Sitwell in a fashion that mirrored widespread sentiment, it's not the Germans but the French that I'm frightened of. But then, suddenly, Germany blundered. Its war plan demanded an assault on France through Belgium, of whose neutrality Britain was a guarantor. Berlin formally notified London of its intention to invade. In 1914, Moltke... Germany's chief of staff was so sure that Britain was going to come into the war anyway that he decided that marching through neutral Belgium would change nothing. He could not have been more wrong. That decision caused the British government to send an ultimatum to Germany, committing the country to fight unless the invaders drew back, as of course they did not. It's sometimes said that Belgian neutrality was just a pretext rather than a real reason for Britain joining the conflict. I don't agree. Although Asquith, Gray, Churchill... Haldane wanted to back France to preserve the European balance of power. Much of their own Liberal Party was vehemently opposed until the Germans invaded Belgium, an action that united the British people as nothing else could have done. On the 4th of August, Britain became the last major European power to enter the struggle. A few historians argue that this country could have stayed neutral in 1914 while Germany secured its almost inevitable victory on the continent and that we could have prospered mightily by doing so. But the dominating instincts of Germany's leadership, repeatedly articulated by the Kaiser and his generals, would hardly have been moderated by triumph in 1914. They didn't go to war with a grand plan for world domination, but soon after war had broken out, they identified massive territorial rewards as their price for granting an armistice to the Allies. Had the Kaiserreich vanquished its only important continental rivals, it seems fantastic to imagine that its rulers would afterwards have offered a generous accommodation to a neutral Great Britain or acquiesced in a global status quo still dominated by British financial interests. Anybody who doubts the earnest of Germany's commitment to impose a draconian peace should consider the March 1918 Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, which Berlin imposed on the defeated Russians. To believe that Britain could and should have acquiesced in a German triumph in 1914 requires one to believe in the moderation and the generosity of Germany's rulers, as some of us cannot. 
George Orwell wrote, with his accustomed insight, um, a generation later, in 1945, the only way to end a war quickly is to lose it. It seems time, and more than time, to acknowledge that Britain played a necessary part in the Great War. Our participation was rewarded by only a few worthless new colonies together with financial ruin. But 1914 Germany, as ruled by the Kaiser and his generals and ministers, represented a malign force whose triumph had to be frustrated. The supreme irony of 1914 is that so great was Germany's economic and industrial achievement at that period, it had so far overtaken Russia and France and, uh, and Britain that I believe that if war had not come, nothing could have prevented Germany from dominating Europe within a generation by entirely peaceful means. But it's no good to me dismissing the Kaiser and his generals as somehow comic opera figures um, who we shouldn't take seriously. In the last resort, for better or for worse, the Kaiser was in charge of Germany. The Kaiser was the man who ruled this country. The Kaiser was the man who signed the order for Germany to go to war. And I do not believe that Britain could have stood by and watched while this took place. More than 700,000 British servicemen who perished between 1914 and 18 didn't die for nothing. Um, all deaths in all wars are just cause for lamentation. But whatever the shortcomings of the peace made by the Allies at Versailles, if Germany had been dictating the terms, there could have been no return to honey for tea at Grantchester or indeed across the British Empire. I believe that we had to fight. Thank you very much. Thanks very much indeed, um, Max, and for those who've been fans of your work of many years, hearing you praising a socialist party was a particularly beautiful touch in, the, touch, touch in that speech. I remember that magic moment. Um, I'm now going to turn to John Charmley, um, speaking to the second, uh, seconder of the motion. He's Professor of Modern History at the University of East Anglia, the author of Splendid Isolation, Britain and the Balance of Power, 1874 to 1914. He's best known for his revisionist interpretation of British foreign policy in the mid-20th century, to which Max just referred. Please welcome John Charney. Thank you, Mr Chairman. It's, I feel a bit like that moment in Sebastian Folk's book when the bombardment stops... And although I'm not going to do the bird song after Sir Max's wonderful bombardment, I do feel a little shell-shocked, but I shall gather my forces and attempt to, uh, to suggest that we've listened to the most marvellous bit of fiction, counterfactual history at its most imaginative. Because, of course, always with the counterfactual it's always, it would have been dreadful, darlings, and the Germans are beastly. But the problem with this bit of counterfactual is it's actually really rather easily answered. It was only, what, half a century earlier that Germany did win a major war against France. It did actually annex Alsace-Lorraine. It put a huge indemnity upon the French. And do you know what? The skies did not fall in. Kaiser Wilhelm I and Bismarck were not 
nice men. They were not Democrats either. Bismarck was the man who had united Germany, or as some of us would see it, divided uh, Grosse Deutschland with a policy of blood and iron. And yet, do you know, the Kaiser Reich was not the Third Reich. By 1913-14, although the Kaiser and Bettmann Hollweg and the elite were hanging on, quite clearly the forces of real democracy were baying at their heels. The German militarists were nervous. They could see that things were not going their way. So I think the idea that Germany would have won and in the circumstances of 1914, after a six-weeks war, which is about what it would have taken, they would have enacted the kind of peace they put in place in 1918, again, is simply counterfactual imagination. Placing the thing at its worst. It always imagines that somehow German hegemony would have been there forever. It wouldn't have been. How on earth would the Kaiser Reich, which was having enough trouble with its own blooming socialists, have actually managed to dominate Europe militarily? It would have been a repeat of 1871. We're not talking about Hitler. We are not talking about this military domination that, that Max imagines. And of course he has to imagine that. Because if he doesn't imagine that, then he has to admit the plain fact of the matter. That the war was not worth fighting at all. Because unless you imagine this, this bogeyman Germany, what do you get? You get a war for the balance of power in Europe. Britain had stayed out in 1866. Britain had stayed out in 1871, and the skies had not fallen in, nor would they in 1914. Our major enemies for most of the 19th century, of course, had been the French and the Russians. So how do we end up actually fighting on their side? We end up fighting on their side by what I would call the Sir Edward Grey and the Tar Baby solution. Because what poor Sir Edward, who was haunted by the isolation that Britain had suffered when he'd been undersecretary to Rosebery in 1894-95. He was frightened of British isolation. So he hung, rather as a poor old Br'er Rabbit did to the Tar Baby, he hung to the French and he hung to the Russians, despite the fact that quite clearly by 1913, the Russians, who had begun to recover from the Russo-Japanese War and the defeat inflicted upon them, were up to their old tricks in the great game, opposing British interests in India, opposing British interests in the Middle East. All the things that Curzon said in, 1907, in 1907 when he opposed the Anglo-Russian Entente were coming true. The Russians were far, a far greater threat to Britain than Germany. Yes, the Germans had had their navy, but by 1913 they'd given up. The British had won the naval race. By 1913-14, Britain was in the strongest diplomatic position she had been for a generation. All the nightmares that Grey had feared and that the imperialists had feared had not come to pass. Germany had given up the naval race, Britain had won. The French, well, the French were what the French always were. They were looking for revenge, but they were... Their appetite was so great, but their teeth were so bad. 
And the Russians, the Russians were the Russians. The Russians were the real threat to British power. This is about Britain's national interests. And you know the odd thing when you examine the debates in the cabinet in August 1914 is that very few cabinet ministers agreed with Sir Max's line. Asquith feared at one point that more than half the cabinet would resign. Now, either we are in the presence of an awful lot of men who, of course, didn't enjoy not just the perfect vision of 2020 hindsight, but didn't actually share Sir Max's line that the Germans were this huge danger. There certainly was a group around Grey and the old liberal imperialists with a few Tory tub-thumpers too who were very keen to get involved in the war. But most of the cabinet were not, and most of the cabinet were right. What were the British actually really worried about in July? So far, what we keep hearing is we retrofit from 1918 back to 1914. Let's recreate 1914. As Churchill himself describes in his wonderful book, The The World Crisis, which some of you will remember, Balfour commented that Churchill has written a book about himself and called it The World Crisis. (laughs) (laughs) They were worrying about Fermanagh and Tyrone. Britain was on the verge of civil war. Civil war over Ireland. This was the major problem facing the cabinet. And in some senses... One of the things that the crisis in August does is it allows politicians to distract themselves from the impending civil war. The only thing that one could say that the First World War does for Britain is it stops a civil war in Ireland. I suspect there were other ways of doing that, you know. So, in short... Most of the cabinet in 1914 did not think that if Germany won, the skies would fall in. Back in 1871, when Germany did win, the skies did not fall in. There was no domination over the whole of Europe. You only have to stop and think for a moment of the trouble the Germans had managing their own politics in the Kaiserreich. That's all you have to think about. To imagine that this ramshackle, and it was really beginning to creak at the seams by 1913, to imagine that this ramshackle political settlement that Bismarck had cobbled together would have been able to have exercised some kind of military dictatorship over Europe is the worst kind of counterfactual history. But the opposition really have to engage in it, because if they don't, it becomes perfectly obvious that it was not in Britain's interest to fight in World War I. And Grey was wrong, palpably wrong, when in 1914 in the House of Commons on the 3rd of August, he said nothing could be worse than than us being left out of this war. Well, the rest of the history of 20th century Europe was a sad threnody on that theme and showed how wrong he was. The consequences were dire and they were not worth it. And Britain had the choice of staying out and politicians got it wrong. And since then, politicians and historians have united to give you this myth. And I ask you tonight... 
to repudiate a century of myth-making and to vote in favour of the fact that Britain should have stayed out of this ghastly foreign mess. Thank you. Thanks very much indeed, uh, John. Now, our last speaker um, against the motion is Margaret Macmillan, who's the warden of St Anthony's College, Oxford, and professor of international history at that university. She's the author of numerous historical books. The latest is The War That Ended Peace, The Road to 1914. Please welcome Margaret Macmillan. Perhaps, as a Canadian, I should also mention that we like peacekeeping. But tonight, I'm afraid, um, I can't try and keep the peace, not after the outrageous things which we have heard from our opponents, <laughs> in response to a very calm and reasoned statement by my partner, Max Hastings. I would argue that Britain had reason to fight the First World War. I think we need to look at those reasons. And I think we need to look at them treating history with respect. Um, Dominic Sandbrook and John Charmley have both talked about how we must have hard historical facts. In fact, what they've given us is a great many um, confections of interpretation. What they've also done is, is turn their faces firmly against counterfactuals, but it seems to me they have produced an enormous counterfactual. We see a picture of a happy Europe, united, harmonious, Kaiser Wilhelm II, a sort of banky moon of the continent, <laughs> smiling benevolently around, bringing peace, getting the Serbs under control, uh, running the German Empire. By the way, I, I don't think saying that Germany and Southwest Africa is a good example of, of how Germany was really a rather moderate colonial power is perhaps the one I would have chosen. Um, speak to the Herero about that, most of whom were destroyed in the German colonial wars. Um, Joseph Goebbels Joseph uh, Hermann Goering's father, actually, the governor of Southwest Africa. Um, but that is a side track. I'm not going to go into counterfactuals. But let us remember what the world was like in 1914. And let us not patronize those who had to make what were very, very difficult decisions at the time. We know how the story turned out. And so it's very easy for us to say what fools they were. They should have known that Passchendaele was on the way. They should have known that Verdun was going to happen. They should have known that Ypres was going to happen. They should have known that the first day of the Somme was coming. That, it seems to me, is like saying that those who started the Industrial Revolution should have known that we were going to get climate change in the 21st century. We can't read back into the past what we know happened. Yes, we know that the war turned into a stalemate, and it was a dreadful war in many ways, but that was not what people knew at the time, and I think we must be very, very careful to separate that out. And I think what we need to do is look at what faced those who had to make the decision in Britain in 1914. We don't actually know what was said in the cabinet debates terribly well because there is no record of those. But what we can see from the diaries of people of the time is that they agonized over the decision. It was not an easy decision, and they weighed many of the questions that we have been weighing here tonight. What was at issue for Britain in 1914 were a number of things, and I think it's very important, again, to remember that and to treat those who had to make the decisions with the respect that they deserve. They did not make these decisions lightly. These were not a bunch of upper-class toffs saying, let's send a whole lot of boys over to France and see what happens. I mean, these were people who thought very seriously 
about what it meant and, and thought very seriously about the alternatives before them. The issues in 1914 were not about fighting for democracy. I mean, that is absolutely wrong. People didn't go in to the First World War thinking they were fighting for democracy, nor did they go in, if I may disagree with that great historian Michael Gove, saying we are fighting for a liberal international order. <laughs> you did not see people lining up outside the recruiting statements saying, goodbye, mother, I'm off to fight for a liberal international order. <laughs> What they thought they were fighting for were a number of things. They thought they were fighting for the rights of small nations, and that meant Belgium. The German plans called for an invasion of Belgium, which was a neutral country. Its neutrality had been guaranteed by the European powers, including Germany itself. That was what really swayed David Lloyd George, who was one of the leading anti-war figures in the cabinet up until the summer of 1914. He wrote to his wife in North Wales and said, we cannot stand by and see the rights of small nations violated like this. And I think there was a very strong sense in Britain at the time that Belgium was defenseless. It was attacked unprovoked by Germany. The Germans sent an ultimatum to the Belgian government saying, we want you to show that you will be friends with us, so would you please hand over your frontier forts and let us go through and attack France. And the Belgians chose to resist and paid a terrible price for that. We now know that it was not all propaganda about German atrocities in Belgium during the First World War. A, number of, a large number of Belgian civilians were shot out of hand, large numbers taken against all the laws of war to do forced labor in Germany. The ancient and beautiful library at Louvain was deliberately burnt by German soldiers, enraged by the fact that they were encountering resistance from this small country. Britain also had obligations to France. It had built up those obligations over a number of years. It had held military conversations with the French in which the British had said, look, We will, when a war starts, send our troops to this place, to this railway depot. What arrangements will you make? The French had every reason to expect that a British force would come to their aid. Similar naval arrangements. The French had pulled a lot of their ships into the Mediterranean to protect sea lanes in the Mediterranean, assuming that the British would defend the French coasts along the Channel and in, uh, in, in, the, in the Atlantic. More than that, there was a general sense that the British and French worked together. And so the French did have reason to think that the British were with them, were on their side. And please let us remember, France did not attack Germany. In fact, the French government pulled its troops back 20 kilometers from the frontiers in order to avoid any provocation. It was Germany that attacked France without any provocation whatsoever. So there were moral responsibilities. I, I would argue there were not legal responsibilities, but certainly responsibilities that have built up over the years. I think there was also the question of British interests. Was it really in British interest to let Germany dominate the continent? The British, yes, have wanted a balance of power in Europe, but what they have not wanted is a single hegemon. That's why they went into the Napoleonic Wars, to prevent that happening. That's why they formed coalitions against Louis XIV. That's why they saw they had to go into the First World War, and that's why they saw they had to go into the Second World War. More than that, the British felt, and I think this was not just those sitting in Whitehall, this was the people who went to join up, including my own ancestors, who felt they were defending something important. They felt they were defending a way of life. They felt they were defending home and hearth. They felt they were defending values which they thought were important. Let's not treat them with condescension. They thought they were fighting for something important. And let us think of what Germany might have been if it had won. This is not a counterfactual. These, these are strong probabilities. Germany was an uneasy country. It was not the militaristic 
nation of caricature, but it was a nation in play. There were different forces within Germany. That Yes, there was a growing socialist party. Yes, there were German liberals, but there was a very, very strong and reactionary upper class, many of whom saw war as a very good opportunity to get rid of all the things they didn't like. As soon as the war broke out, the Kaiser and his circle were talking about getting rid of the Reichstag, suspending the Constitution, and in a very sinister foretaste of what was going to come, rounding up the Jews and getting them out of finance, limiting the power of what some reactionary Germans saw as too powerful um, German, uh, German-Jewish finance. And it was not a country that was necessarily going to be well disposed towards Britain. If Germany had dominated the country, would it have held out a friendly hand to Britain? I don't think so. Britain and Germany were already trade rivals. The Germans had started a naval race with Britain, knowing that for Britain, the navy was its shield and its defense and the way in which it linked to its empire and protected the British Isles. It had already tried to stir up trouble in the British Empire. The idea that Germany would have said to the British, a triumphant Germany would have said to the British, hang on to your empire, we don't care about it, is wrong. The Germans had been intriguing with Indian nationalists who had been to Berlin, who had been encouraged by the Kaiser. The Kaiser is not just a comic opera figure. He's a meddlesome and dangerous figure who spoke too much and said too many things, but that doesn't make him any the less dangerous. The Kaiser had proclaimed himself already in the 1890s the protector of all Muslims around the world. And, of course, he was going to call a jihad almost as soon as the war started to encourage the Muslim citizens of the British and French empires to rise up against them. And so to assume that this would have been a benevolent Germany who would have said to the British, war's over, we've got the French under our control, we've annexed Belgium and the Netherlands, we've basically dominating the center of Europe, Austria-Hungary is is now under control. Keep your empire, we're friends, we don't really wish you any harm. I think we're dreaming, and I think our opponents are dreaming, if they think that. And let us also remember what British entry into the war did. And this is not, again, a counterfactual. The British expeditionary force turned the tide at a time when it looked like France was going to be defeated. We will never know how close we came to a repeat of the summer of 1940, but without the British Expeditionary Force, without the First Battle of the Marne, I think it is highly likely that Germany had won. So were the costs too high? We can't know, and it is not for us to tell those people then that the costs were too high. But they were no higher in terms of lives lost than they had been in the Napoleonic Wars. In terms of British population at the time, 10 million British in the the period of the Napoleonic Wars, over 300,000 dead. In the the First World War, 46 million people in the British Isles and almost half a million dead. And that, of course, isn't including the empire as well. The empire paid a very heavy price, but speaking as a Canadian, we didn't think that price was too high. And so I think the motion should be defeated. Would you like to support Intelligence Squared in what we do? Well, just hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts and you can listen to Intelligence Squared ad-free, enjoy exclusive bonus content and get weekly episodes in advance too. Hit subscribe and we'll see you on the other side. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. 
Download the new Bumble now. Well, I'd like to thank um, all the speakers, um, first of all, for their concision and sticking within the time, um, secondly, for sticking to the point, and thirdly, for the way in which they've accused the others of using sentiment while using it themselves. <laughs> it's absolutely admirable. Anyone here wants to study debating, this is how it's done. Um, the opening uh, vote was, um, before the debate was 19% for the motion and 40% against the motion and 41% don't know. So that is a, quite a strong performance for the against, but everything to play for um, for the supporters of the motion. Um, so it's now over to you. And we're looking forward to taking questions. I'm going to take bunches of probably two or three questions um, together. If you want to make a point particularly to one member of the panel or to one side, um, please make that clear, and I'll endeavour to direct it in the right direction. We have microphones up at the top here, standing microphone. So if you're in the gallery, make your way round there, and I shall um, uh, endeavour to um, bring you in as well. There's lots and lots of hands going up, and I want to try and make sure everybody gets in. So... I'm going to start off by doing um, the gentleman over there on the far, my far right. And can you give the microphone to that lady there for next? Yes, go it's, ahead, sir. It's more directed to preserving the British Empire. Um, we was obviously going to lose that by the 1930s anyway. <clears throat> so I don't think that was a just cause mm -hmm. to preserve the empire. And also Professor Macmillan's, um, with a stalemate situation. It's not rocket science. You've got two technological armies. It's going to end in stalemate. And those two fundamental principles is why okay. we shouldn't have entered the empire and it was going to end in a stalemate. The British was always going to lose their empire. So Thank we you. shouldn't have fought for that. That's Very my good. opinion. Empire Thank you. going to be lost anyway, so not worth fighting for. Um, lady down there, yes, My ahead. question was to Dominic Sandbrook on the point of saying, I think not quite verbatim, that we would have stayed wealthy or rich if we'd stayed out. But much of our position as a creditor was based on empire. Would we really have been able to keep an empire if we'd stayed out? Very good. Okay, and then the lady in the middle here, stand up, yes, you with your hand up there. So we'll get a microphone to you. And I'll take the, uh, the question of the gallery after you. Yes, go ahead, Ram. Um Despite having suggested that um, the, uh, his opponents um, for the proposition were peddling in counterfactuals, it would seem that John Charmley really has established the most implausible counterfactual in saying that the Germans would have won, but then because of their pre-World War I internal problems wouldn't have been able to hang on to anything, despite the obvious resources and manpower they would have gained through winning. Um, surely the job of the um, of the uh, proposition for the motion has in fact been to convince us that the problems could have been solved otherwise, not that a temporary hegemony would have been established but somehow crumbled. Thanks very much. And then uh, up there in the gallery, we'll take, we'll take two questions there, one after the other. Go ahead. Um, I'm going to leave aside the difference between debtors, debtors and creditors because that'd be very boring. But I particularly want to address one or two things to uh, Professor Charmley. First of all, Professor, can you explain to us the importance, or otherwise, of the role of Lloyd George, who we did not mention. Secondly, can you explain why it is that Margaret Macmillan is wrong on the importance of the position of Belgium? And lastly, can you explain why it is that you believe that the Kaiser was not actually in charge of the military in Germany, in spite of the fact that there was a larger democratic population, if I put it that way, within Germany. 
Thank you. With a kind of Wilhelmine rigour, I'm going to say in future you're only allowed to ask one question, not three. <laughs> um, I think we'll take those... Sorry? Well, no, you can have all the, the, all the... They're all good ones, but to be fair, we've just got to... Uh, OK, I'm going to chuck that up to th this side first. Go ahead, um, Dominic, do you want to go first? Yeah, please? I think they're excellent questions, and if I can, can try to deal with them relatively um, speedily. I, I've not suggested for a moment that Kaiser doesn't have a major role uh, with the military, but I don't think he is actually in charge. Certainly Chris Clark and other, and other historians like Richard Evans don't believe the Kaiser is in charge, but, of course, he plays a major role, and I, I, I don't doubt that. And I'm not for a moment arguing that the Germans wouldn't have uh, um, inflicted a fairly draconian peace. All I'm saying is it wouldn't have been a draconian peace on this country. And uh, it was not in our interest in 1871 to fight to keep Alsace-Lorraine for the French and stop the French having to pay a large indemnity. It was no more in our interest in 1914. Um, and I think that uh, in terms of Belgium, I, the Belgian issue, and this refers to Lloyd George too, it is, of course, Belgium that finally persuades uh, Lloyd George to throw his lot in on the side of the, uh, of the warmongers at the time. But although, of course, later he regrets uh, this, and uh, indeed he says that, and this refers to something Margaret said about an alliance system. There wasn't an alliance system. There was not a triple entente. As Lewis Harcourt, the colonial secretary, said in 1913, when Gray used that phrase, the cabinet and parliament had never approved any such thing. This was entirely undemocratic. It was secret diplomacy at its worst. And that's why Lloyd George later changed his mind and thought that we'd slithered into war. Belgium could have been handled in a number of ways. It wasn't even clear whether the guarantee of 1839 was a collective guarantee or a singular one. It would have been perfectly easy to have argued it was a collective one, and as no one else was going to implement it, the British regretfully could stand aside and then negotiate with the Germans uh, afterwards. I mean, you know, yes, it, would have been, it was horrible for everybody anyway, my claim is quite simple. The one set of people who didn't need to get involved in the horror were the British, and that's why you should vote for our motion. Right. I'm going to go to Max next, then Dominic, then Margaret. My blood does rather boil when I hear John Charney talk about warmongers in the British cabinet. I don't know any responsible historian who thinks that anybody in Britain wanted a war in 1914, whereas there were quite a lot of people in Germany who did want a war. Secondly, on the matter of Belgium, it's no good treating this fr frivolously. It's not propaganda. Um, the latest modern scholarship shows that the German army advancing into Belgium murdered in cold blood 6,400 perfectly innocent civilians. Now, while, again, it's wrong to equate them with the Nazis, 6,400 is quite a lot of people of all ages and both sexes. I think one thing that comes across from both um, John and Dominic's views and some of the questions, we're much too prone, I think, to try and see things through the modern 21st century prism. Um, we've got to try and see things as they saw them. We know the British Empire was doomed, that it wasn't going to survive. They didn't know that. And I'm bound to say, I'm tempted, I will quote, um, a splendid man called Charles Carrington, a very cultured, literate man who served for four years in France. And he wrote a letter to a friend in 1975 raging about the way in which, in his view, um, the so-called poet's view of the war had been allowed to take over. And he bitterly resisted the idea that, the, that Siegfried Sassoon spoke for his generation. 
He said, when I meet some clever young scholar from Queens or Keeble who's written on World War I, and I say to him as politely as I can, my dear chap, I was there at the time, and it wasn't at all as you described. The shade of disbelief that I know so well passes over his features as he says to himself, the old boy's growing soft, he's losing his memory. Does anybody care any longer, wrote Carrington, about the silent millions in Britain who did not want the war, did not cause the war, did not shirk the war, and did not lose the war, who had never heard of these lugubrious poets with their self-pitying introversion. And um, Carrington was one of those who went to his grave, as I may say did Wilfred Owen, passionately believing that the Allied cause had been just. Dominic. Uh, let me uh, just uh, back up John Charney's excellent point about Belgium. In 1905, the Foreign Office's legal team reported to the government that Britain did not, in fact, have an obligation to defend Belgium if it were attacked by a foreign power, but they had the right to under the treaty. As Lloyd George himself said, we could, in fact, have slithered out of uh, intervening in Belgium if we'd wanted to. And Britain's own military contingency plans provided that if, in the event of a European war, Belgium remained neutral, we would have blockaded its ports ourselves, so much for our treaty obligations. As for the empire, I think that's absolutely a crucial point. So much of the rhetoric in 1914 and afterwards was about the importance of fighting to defend our empire, to safeguard our empire. We've heard an enormous amount about that from the other side today. But I would argue that nothing loosened our grip on the empire more than the fact that we had exhausted ourselves in the fields of Flanders. Margaret, quick point for you. Um, yeah, a couple of things. Um, what Lloyd George said long after the war was about the origins of the war and about how Europe got into it, not about whether Britain should have gone in or not. So let's not um, have him saying things he wasn't, wasn't saying. As far as the whole financial issue goes, the point I was making was we all agree that Britain was weakened financially by both wars, but that's not why they went in. They were not fighting for financial Gain. And I think at the end of the Second World War, and we should remember this, they thought the cost had been worth it. And I think many people thought at the end of the First World War the cost had been worth it. As far as the empire is concerned, we didn't say that Britain was fighting to defend the empire. But in fact, what I would say now is the empire was fighting to defend Britain and fighting a lot. Let's not forget the Australians, the Canadians, the New Zealanders, the Newfoundlanders, the South Africans who are buried in France or who are buried here. Now, this is not sentiment. This is fact. And the British Empire was something that was very important to those, those nations that were members of it. Not everyone felt the same about it. The Indians were beginning to feel in a very different way. But I think the empire was evolving. It was probably changing anyway. Canada was certainly pushing for more autonomy within it. The First World War may have speeded up that change. But Britain wasn't fighting to protect its empire. It was fighting to protect itself. Right. And the empire was fighting for Britain. Right. Um, I'm going to ask everybody to try and be um, brief so we get as many as possible. I'm going to take um, two questions to start there. And the gentleman at the back has been immensely patient. He's got his hand up. Um, he's had his hand up for a very long time. So then, and then the lady there, and um, then we'll see how we get on. Go ahead, sir. Right. Thank you very much. Um, Dominic Sandbrook said we're in danger of creating a composite bogeyman Germany, uh, Hitler plus uh, Kaiser. Isn't he in danger of creating an artificially divided historical Germany? Because there are plenty of things, um, straws in the wind in the Kaiser's Germany, which indicate the fundamentally reactionary direction German intellectual and social life was taking, whereas British intellectual and social life was taking a liberal direction. It had a liberal government, and that liberal direction was in part responsible for loosening the empire towards the Commonwealth. So Britain was on the side of the angels, I put it to you. Very good. And the gentleman just who's been patiently standing behind you. 
Um, I'm going to commit the crime of doing both an emotional and a counterfactual argument in one, so sorry for that. But I think we are slightly forgetting uh, the fact that, of course, 16 million people were killed in this conflict twice the population of London today. And I totally take the point of Dominic Sandbrook that I think this would have been a much swifter uh, war had Britain not been involved. And I think I'd also posit the point that this war came at the worst possible time in terms of technological development when both sides had the capability to slaughter many, many of the opposing side, but not the technology to land a lasting blow uh, that, of course, we saw at the end of the Second World War did exist. Right, thanks so much. Now, lady there, go ahead. Yes, um, Max Hastings mentions prisms, and I would like to raise the fact that we're having this debate during the prism, if you like, of a government-inspired centenary that quotes, that, sorry, open quote, celebrates the British spirit, close quote. And um, I represent an organisation called noglory.org, please jot it down, um, which... This is going to be a very the, brief plug, if it's going to be a plug I'm coming to a plug. I think you're probably taking longer shutting me up than I... We'll take to finish. But um, th- this, this posits that it could be possible that this is softening up for other foreign adventures. Um, and do we not think that this motion would go through unequivocally easily during the 1960s when we had, oh, what a lovely war. We had the, the fine television series, The Great War, and a strong welfare state where there was a very different feeling and that this was thought of as an international atrocity where socialists had more in common with socialists in other countries than they did with national groupings. Thank you very much. And um, I think we'll... Go ahead. Yes, sir, then. Uh, well, I admired uh, Margaret Macmillan's presentations. I'm surprised she didn't mention the role of India uh, defending Britain in the First World War. But, um, Margaret Macmillan, you suggested that it was patronising not to recognise that the war was for a national way of life, if I heard you correctly. Why should it be the UK way of life, especially... And even more profoundly, perhaps, what was the UK way of life in those days? And why did it appear so elusive to so many people who perhaps sought meaning in the First World War and supported Britain in that for reasons that were not just geopolitical? Thanks very much. I'm going to, um, we'll take one more question. Yes, um, go ahead, sir. Yes, I have a question for both, actually. For those that are for, how would Britain, do you think, should have reacted if Germany had controlled France post that event? For those against, if Germany hadn't gone to France through Belgium, would you still have intervened? Thank you. You've broken my rule about two questions. They are very good ones. (laughs) Um, Yes, we'll go um, Margaret first. Well, I think... um the UK way of life was... This is what people thought they were fighting for at the time. And yes, there was no one clear UK way of life. There were, there were many ways of life, but people thought that they were fighting to defend a society of which they were part, and they, they felt it important. And, you know, the socialists... Someone mentioned the socialists having no, having no fatherland. I mean, that was the great phrase of Marx. But, in fact, socialists all over Europe flocked to the colours for their own countries. And, again, I think... We must understand. We don't have to agree with it. We must understand. And, you know, Oh, What a Lovely War is, 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 is interesting, I think, because it was done with a very anti-war sentiment. But what is interesting is how people responded to it in the 60s. A friend of mine was at the opening night in the 1960s, and a busload of veterans had come up, veterans of the First World War, 
And they had the most wonderful evening. They sang along with all the songs. They jammed into the bar saying, wasn't that wonderful, Bill? Doesn't it take you back? And Joan Littlewood was probably weeping in the wings somewhere. But, you know, let's remember that a lot of people, years after the war, thought they had done something good, had done something important. I mean, I think Max is absolutely right. A handful of very powerful war poets who would not publish some of them until the 1960s. Wilfred Owen really wasn't known until the 1960s, have given us a view of that war as one of sheer horror. And as for the stalemate, in fact, yes, it, it did. There were dangers of stalemates. There were always wars of movement on the Eastern Front. There were wars of movement in the, in, the, in the Middle East. And towards the end of that war, the generals, who were not all the idiots they've been portrayed at, were in fact beginning to find ways of dealing with it. But that's another subject. Sorry. Very good. Dominic. Uh, let me uh, answer the, 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 the first question which talked about creating a divided historical Germany and argued that Germany had reactionary tendencies. I think if you looked from the viewpoint of the 21st century at all the Edwardian uh, societies or the, in the first years of the 20th century, they would all appear to our eyes reactionary in one way or another. But it is simply untrue that Germany would have loomed largest as the most reactionary and the most illiberal. In fact, the welfare reforms that were passed in Germany in the first part of the 20th century were a model to societies all over the world, including, for example, the progressive reformers in America of uh, Theodore Roosevelt, William Howard Taft, and the Woodrow Wilson administrations, many of whom modelled some of their reforms on what had happened in the Kaiser's Germany. So it was hardly some model of reaction. In fact, if you wanted a model of reaction, you could do no better than look at our close, beloved ally, the Tsarist Empire of Russia, which was the most reactionary society on the planet and with whom we were fighting hand in hand. Very good. Max, do you want to come... A very interesting question was, um, if, it hadn't, if they hadn't invaded Belgium, would we still have been right to fight? I think it would have been very difficult to persuade the British people, certainly half the Cabinet and much of the Liberal Party, considered that, um, that Serbia and Russia deserved absolutely no sympathy at all. And I'm one of those. I would say myself that if the Germans had not gone into Belgium, I would find it very difficult to say. I would assuredly have said that uh, we could and should have fought in 1914. Um, but I do urge, I do think it's so important in this whole debate that we just keep trying to close our eyes and not see things through this 21st century prism and look at them then. One point I have to pick up on Dominic. Um, when he said absolutely rightly about the Germans' enlightened um, social legislation, which was true, I, um, I've written myself and I said this evening, Germany was in many ways the most advanced society in Europe, but it was cursed by this extraordinarily dysfunctional um, system of government. And one point that hasn't been made so far that does deserve to be made is quite a lot of the people around the Kaiser. Well, it actually has, what Margaret said in some degree, one of the reasons they were keen to fight in 1914 um, was that they believed not only that uh, they could achieve a triumph over France, but if they did so, it would enable them to see off their own socialists. So I don't think that uh, John or Dominic can make a credible point of, isn't it wonderful that, um, that Germany had such a powerful socialist movement when seeing off those same socialists was one of the Kaiser's purposes. And one quick point I'd make uh, generally about... Um, um, this warmonger business, um, to take a few random quotes um, of things said by um, key Germans in the years before the war. Um, Moltke says to the Austrian chief of staff, February 1913, Austria's fate will be decided not along the bug, but rather along the same. Moltke again, October 1912, if war is coming, I hope it will come soon before I'm too old to cope with things satisfactorily. Um, um, 
the Germany's Quartermaster General writes in May 1914 memorandum expressing dis dismay about the long-term strategic prospects, saying Germany had no reason to expect to be attacked soon, but should a war come, the chances of achieving a speedy victory in a major European war are still today very favourably. Soon, however, this will no longer be the case. Nobody in Britain ever said anything remotely resembling that uh, in the years leading up to 1914. I'm driven back again and again to the fact that whatever one says about Britain's position in 1914, any suggestion that there were warmongers who were eager to fight, nobody wanted to fight, but it was felt the Germany we were up against was a Germany that had to be resisted. John? I find that curious, because Max has just said that uh, it, if it wasn't for the invasion of Belgium... This horrible Germany he's con conjured up, he would not perhaps have been in favour of fighting it. It would have been fantastically so, difficult so politically to make it, that. Not only would it have been fantastically difficult politically, it would have been impossible, and Asquith knew it was impossible. And it's quite clear that it's that that tips Lloyd George over. And this is why the other side keep having to retrofit and go backwards. They keep saying, imagine how it was in 1914. Our side is doing just that. The people who were taking these decisions did not take the view that Margaret and Max took because they didn't have 2020 hindsight of bogeymen. They took a rational decision and their view was that the danger was not so great but that the Belgian thing meant they had to go in. And there's a political dimension on both sides. Even Max, has, even, Max has quoted from out of context German memos which actually what they really show is the Germans were worried Russia had recovered from the Russo-Japanese War, and what the Germans are worried about is the strategic situation is slipping away from them. That's what they're concerned about, not mounting a war of offence. They see it as a war of defence. And over this side, frankly, the House of Commons had been deceived. It had been kept in the dark. And as Lloyd George himself said, had he known in 1911 that about the military conversations, he would have resigned from the Cabinet... So I think we are dealing here, if you go to 1914, we're dealing with sensible men who did not see this bogeyman that has been conjured up for us tonight in, def in defence of an untenable position. Now, I'd be absolutely fascinated. If there's anyone here from Germany who'd like to ask a question, that would be really interesting. Um, stick your hands up, wave around. Yes, go ahead. Uh, we'll just wait for the microphone, it's coming to you. Are you German? Yeah, I'm German. Okay. Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm 100% German. Um, my, both my grandfathers uh, fought in both wars. And uh, I was always struck by the anti-Semitism of, um, uh, of my grandparents. And I'm sort of curious how you think Germany would have developed um, had uh, Britain not fought and what would have happened um, to German anti-Semitism um, if it had been left unchecked. Thanks very much. Any other Germans want to? Yes, go ahead. Wonderful to have a diverse audience. Go ahead, get the microphone right along there. Stand up, so we can see. We're waiting. And anyone from Bel? Yes, go ahead, sir. While we're waiting, yes, go ahead. Yes, well, I'm half Austrian, and my that grandparents. <laughs> My grandparents fought on both sides of the First World War. Um, and uh, I just want to take issue with one point that uh, Sir Max Hastings keeps making, which is that there are no 
there were no warmongers in Britain at the time. I think he only needs to turn to his left and speak to Professor Macmillan, who very recently, um, in, in her most recent book, quotes Jackie Fisher, who was in charge of the Navy in, in Britain, on two occasions being dissuaded by politicians from mounting a unilateral attack on the German Navy. Good point. Um, and, That's a perfectly um, fair point about Jackie Fisher. Yeah, you, you, we'll come to you in a moment. Um, and finally, while I'm doing my kind of multinational round, any Belgians here with a view on <laughs> whether, we, whether they were grateful we went to war on their behalf? <laughs> so, no, no Belgians. Any other questions? Right, open house again. Go ahead, sir. Yes. Um, gentleman at the back. No, he's not missing. Um, let's have that gentleman there. Yes, go ahead. Sorry. Yes, the microphone's just behind you. Turn around. Sorry. Turn around. Turn around, behind you. Yeah. There you um, I, I just have a quick question for the two uh, proposers for the m- motion. Do you, gentlemen, have trouble, um, given the, uh, until very recently, any questioning of the First World War was perceived to be sort of undemocratic, an insult to the glorious dead, etc.? And have we not suffered recently, uh, well, until very recently, uh, from not being able to have a dispassionate analysis of this because of that? One sees some similar signs when people want to criticise Afghanistan and Iraq, but I won't go into go there. But uh, yes. thank you. Very good. Let's have a couple of questions up there. Go ahead. Okay. Well, um, I hope this question is relevant and interesting. Uh, it, let's say that Britain decided to keep out of the First World War if the Germans had won, and if the Kaiser decided to, as uh, Max put it, impose their shopping list upon Europe. Surely then Britain would have been, uh, would have declared or would have seen this shopping list and decided that they weren't going to stand for it and would have, could have stopped Germany in peacefully or by war from imposing this shopping list. And, well, yeah. Okay, and behind you, is that some of them? Yes. Uh, thank you. Just to put into context the 6,000 Belgians that uh, Max Hastings mentioned as being shot by the Germans, I looked up the number of Boer women and children killed by the British in the Boer War. It seems to be about at least 30,000. And I also thought it would be useful to read out the key quote from Edward Gray's address in the House of Commons in 1914, because it helps us really sum up what the mind frame was then. Um, And he says, If in a crisis like this we run away from those obligations of honour and interest as regards the Belgian Treaty, I doubt whether whatever material force we might have at the end it would be of very much value in the face of the respect that we should have lost. So my question to the opposers of the motion is, was the First World War, the casualties and the money that it cost, really worth respect and honour? Thank you. Right. And very, just ten words from the gentleman there, we'll get to the panel. Isn't, isn't the key point that the war to end all wars didn't? <laughs> Thank you. Right. Um, let's go from left to right. So, Margaret, do you have... Um, Whenever anyone says this isn't the key point, I always get a bit nervous because there are many key points. And yes, it didn't end all wars, but that would be expecting more of human nature than I think we're capable of doing. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it, we, we, mustn't look, we mustn't be looking back at the beginnings of the war in, 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 in our knowledge of what happened later. Um, let me just make two points. Um, one about Germany, and I, I would like to stress it was very much a country in play. I mean, there were forces within Germany which were pushing it this way and that. It was not yet settled at all. But what was worrying about Germany was the power of the military. Jackie Fisher was sometimes, well, eccentric is a polite way of saying sometimes crazy, 
Um, but he was kept firmly under civilian control. The German military went under civilian control. They made their plans to fight a two-front war, didn't inform the civilian government until 1912, and the civilians simply acquiesced. In 1913, there was a very telling incident in Alsace, which had been annexed in Zabern, where a German officer beat up local people, treated them in contempt. The authorities reacted not by punishing the military who'd done this, but by defending them and by throwing their opponents, those, those locals who were criticizing them, in jail. So I think you had a very worrying development in Germany, potential in Germany, which I think would have made, would have, would have made a real difference. As far as the issue of respect goes, it actually does matter to nations whether they have a sense of respect. And respect isn't just some vacuous notion of honor. Respect is about whether you stand true to your principles. And I think the British felt they were standing true to their principles in 1914. We can disagree, but let's not condescend to them. Uh, well, I would completely disagree with Margaret Memlin's last point. I don't think uh, 700,000 dead British men were worth any amount of respect. That's the talk of the, talk of the street rather than, I think, of um, moral debate. Uh, I think it's interesting how this debate has turned so quickly into a kind of referendum on the supposed beastliness of the Germans. That, of course, is our opponent's aim, to set up the Germans as this kind of bogeyman. And it's a testament to what one of the uh, excellent questions uh, talked about, talking about this kind of mist of patriotism, of patriotic propaganda that still distorts our vision uh, of the First World War. I'd just like to answer the very first question, which was about anti-Semitism. Uh, of course, there was anti-Semitism in Germany uh, before the First World War, as there was in almost every society uh, in Europe, including uh, uh, the United States as well, as it happens. But if you were looking for a society in which anti-Semitism was, was, was deep and was visceral and was a horribly unpleasant force, you would look at Russia, or you might perhaps look at France, where the Dreyfus case was still reverberating all those years later. So to argue that in some way there was this kind of latent anti-Semitism in Germany that was of a different order to that in other European countries and was set to poison everything, I think is, is not right at all. Very good, Max. Um, two or three quick points. Um, first of all, um, I entirely agree that phrase, the glorious dead, does um, um, chime um, very harshly on us. But one always has to consider the feelings that those who've lost loved ones, they have to be made to feel this sacrifice was worthwhile. And these are forms of words that are always used. Um, the Boers, I think that's a fair point, too, to raise. Um, Britain's behaviour during uh, in the South African War was um, less than admirable in many respects, but nothing happened in the, South African, in the South African War that was remotely comparable with the German systematic slaughter of 6,400 civilians lined up against walls in, in Belgium. The concentration camps, nothing, that is not, and we could sit here all night talking about the concentration the concentration camps were an extremely mistaken British policy, an extremely, an ex in many ways, a barbarous British policy, but there was no question of lining bars up against walls and shooting them in cold blood, as the Germans did in 1914. Um, I also think that, coming back to this question of the principle of, about Belgium, that it does seem pretty ugly to say, let's decide on a tariff. What was Belgium worth? What was international order? What was actually, should we have said, all right, it's worth 5,000 British lives, but it's not worth 50,000 British lives? You can't do that. In the end, it has always been throughout history 
generally considered an honourable and right position for responsible and decent nations to take, that you will try and uphold principles of international law and international order which were directly and brutally flouted by the Germans in 1914. Yes, I think that uh, it's... We've heard that you know, the Empire came to defend Britain. Britain wasn't actually a threat in 1914. Britain may have placed herself in harm's way by getting involved in the war, but really, to invoke that as a cause for the war when Britain had put herself into the war, really, for Hutzpah, that's up there with the person on trial for killing his parents, pleading the fact that he's an orphan in mitigation. Really. Okay. No, if we're looking at, certainly Margaret's mentioned the thing about, oh, yes, the, 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 the military were in charge in Germany and, and politicians didn't know certain things. But it's perfectly clear that in this country, politicians didn't know certain things. There was no triple entente. Grey had entered into talks and the British military had entered into talks without telling the whole cabinet. And the reason they had not told the whole blooming cabinet is if they had, Lloyd George would certainly have resigned and the Liberal government would have collapsed. And if we're going to reconstruct 1914, we need to bear the politics of the Cabinet in mind. Right. Well, on that note, we'll get the, everyone's going to have a chance to have a final um, um, bite, at the, bite at the apple in their perorations. But first of all, we've got to get the voting underway. And it's always very important in a motion with a not in it that you are absolutely clear what you're voting so. So the motion is, Britain should not have fought in the First World War. And you can vote yes, or you can vote no, or you can don't know. But if you say yes, Britain should not have fought in the, in the First World War, um, then you're on this side. And you say no, then you're on this side. Did I get that right? Yes, I did. Good. Um, very, very, very complicated. Um, so um, we're going to go... You, please try not to talk. Please try not to talk while this is going. You should be able to do your voting without talking. Um, at least I hope so. And we're going to ask the, and I'm going to ask the um, the panel now. Order, order, come on. I'm going to ask um, Margaret McMillan to go first, then John Charmley, then Max Hastings, then Dominic Sandbrook for their final response. Margaret, over to you. Thank you. Um, I'd like to say what a pleasure it is to talk about these issues. Do you want me to be quiet? <laughs> No, I'm joking. Um, it'll take more than that to shut me up, I think. Uh, but it is, it is a great pleasure to talk about these issues because they're important ones and they matter, and they matter to us now as much as they matter to people then. And I think one of the good things that's happening in the commemoration of the First World War is we're debating these things again, as we should. Um, I do feel that the British government made the right decision knowing what it knew at the time. And I do think it's important to remember that no one in the government could see four years down the road, they couldn't see a week down the road. What they could see was what Britain's obligations were, what they could see was what sort of Europe they wanted, what they could see was where British interests lay. And to say that Britain could have waited, let Germany defeat France, which, which it came close to doing. I think it was very, very important that the British Expeditionary Force was there in August 1914. Germany could have won, France could have sued for peace, Russia would probably have sued for peace over in the east. And someone said, well, couldn't Britain then have negotiated with Germany and if Germany got difficult, gone to war with it? But it would have gone. Britain would have gone to war with Germany from a very much more disadvantageous footing. It probably would not have won. It would have lost 
as much as it was going to lose in the 1914-18 war. It would have lost its empire. It would have lost its financial position. It probably would have lost much of its navy. I think we also need to remember that the Belgian case was not just something that you weigh in a scale, tiny little country with you know, good frites and beer, but not as important as, as all, the, all the British um, who, who were going to die. That was not the sort of calculation they were making or they could have made. But let's just remember what happened to Belgium. It wasn't just Belgian civilians that were shot. It wasn't just that. It was that Belgium was occupied 90%, over 90% of it was occupied by Germany, and it was what Germany did to Belgium, which gave a very good example of what a European-dominated continent would have looked like. Belgian civilians against all the laws of war were taken off to do forced labor in Germany. Belgium was looted. It's never really recovered from it. Belgian livestock, right down to the chickens and the geese, was taken into Germany. Belgian gold was taken to Germany. Belgian resources were taken to Germany. So let us not assume that a Germany confident in victory would have been an easy master for Germany. And let's not assume it's the Germany of Angela Merkel. It's a long, long way from that. And I think we have to remember that. We have to try and put ourselves back into the shoes of those who had to make those decisions. And they did not make them lightly. They didn't make them for silly reasons. They didn't make them dreaming of some medieval notion of honor. They made them very, very seriously indeed because they thought it was in Britain's and Europe's best interests. Thanks very much, Margaret. Over to you, um, John. Yes, I think what we have to remember is they almost didn't take the decision to go to war. Belgium was important, not because the Germans had committed atrocities in Belgium, not because they knew what was going to happen, but because it fitted with the direction of Gray's foreign policy. We've heard that, that Britain had commitments to France. These commitments had never been before the House of Commons. They'd never been to the full cabinet. These were not democratic commitments. These were commitments from secret diplomacy. In Brailsford and the Labour Party, who after the war complained about secret diplomacy, were right. So let us not forget that it was not inevitable that the cabinet as a whole did not think that the danger was what our opponents say it was. It was a very narrow decision, and if you look at the motion, should we have fought in the First World War, were the results worth it? No, they weren't, because every single trouble spot in the world at the moment, in the, certainly in the Middle East, in the former Ottoman Empire, is partly the result of the collapse of the European empires which this war created. We should have stayed out of it, and whatever had happened could not have been as bad as what actually happened, which was the collapse of the European order and the unleashing of the forces that led to communism, fascism, and another war in 20 years afterwards. That was what was the real result. This is not counterfactual. Was it worth it? If you think that as a result of the sacrifices made, what happened next was worth it, by all means vote for them. If you want to get back to 1914 and just correct the cabinet, do so and back our side. No, Britain should have not gone to war because no vital British interest was concerned. This isn't a sentimental argument, it's a pure rail politique argument and I've not heard a single major British interest put at risk by not going to war. Thank you. Thanks very much. And um, as, as we speak, the ace team of counters are busily um, 
totting up the for and against so we'll be able to announce the um, result um, by the, um, the due time of 8.30. Go ahead, Max. Uh, I feel that John doesn't really do full justice to his own argument when he fails to point out that he doesn't think we should have fought the Second World War either, unless I misjudge you. Um, <laughs> that, um, this was about World War I, Max. Nonetheless, I do think that to set in context John's view, um, I'm slightly tempted, if we had a whole evening before us, to ask him what does he think Britain might have thought worth fighting for. Um, I think this has been a very helpful debate for some of us, because one thing it does is it, cl it clarifies, it focuses the argument, and in the end, to believe that John and Dominic's um, motion deserves to succeed, you have to have a view that Germany in 1914 was a fundamentally benign place which would have acted generously in the event of victory in a continental war. And that is a view which some of us who have studied Germany pretty closely find very hard, indeed impossible, to accept. If Germany has won, it would have been a disaster. Let us leave Europe out of this for a moment. It would have been a disaster for Britain and British interests. There could have been no happy outcome in standing by. Max, I have, I mean, you, you've done a, a, a brilliant debating trick, which is slightly mischievous, and I'm not going to let you get away with it, which is you've posed a direct question to someone who can't answer it. So I'm going to just uh, put that question back to John and say, John, what is a British interest that would be worth fighting for if you don't think that the First and Second World Wars were worth fighting for? I think a direct British interest would have been had we been under threat of being invaded. And I hate to remind Max and others of the fact that um, Hitler was not proposing to invade Britain in 1939. I know that history is about chaps in an old-fashioned view and geography is about maps. But last time I looked, Poland was to the east. So unless Hitler was going the bloody long way round, he wasn't <laughs> proposing to invade Britain. So I'm in favour of defending Britain's national interest and stopping us being invaded. Letting Hitler go to Poland eastwards towards his real aim, Russia. Hitler wanted three things. Lebensraum, to kill Jews, and world domination. He didn't get the first, and he wasn't going to kill many Jews by invading Britain or get much Lebensraum either. It's a red herring and simply reflects the parlous state of Max's argument. Don't blame him for using it. If my argument was a threadbare, I'd cover my backside with anything going. <laughs> I'm, I'm tempted to let Max respond to that. We could go on all night. And we could go on, we could go on all night, but I won't give in to that temptation, at least yet. Um, meanwhile, I'm going to ask um, Dominic to have the last word from his side. Uh, well, I'm glad most of you have voted anyway uh, before we got stuck into Hitler. Um, <laughs> I'll just answer something Margaret said. Margaret said that, of course, we're being terribly unfair to the uh, government in 1914 because they didn't know the future. Of course, no government ever knows the future. But one reason we pay them is to try and guess right. And in this case, I think the British government guessed wrong. They miscalculated our interests and they got it badly wrong. We've heard an enormous amount today about counterfactuals. Uh, every, I mean, actually, since you voted, everything I say is futile and useless anyway, but I'll, I'll say it nevertheless. Let's have a counterfactual. Um, imagine that it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very good. I mean, imagining that you're still voting. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Let's just concentrate on what did happen. What did happen was the biggest calamity in world history. 
the collapse of Central Europe, the rise of extremism, a terrible slaughter, not just during the First World War, but during the 1920s and 30s in, in Russia, in Germany, in most of the states of Central Europe, which went to war with one another, then the Second World War, and then the imposition of communism. Now, all you have to do is to think about what did happen. You don't have to imagine some other scenario. All you have to do is to think about what did happen and to ask yourselves, was that worth it? Was that the outcome that was worth having? In fact, if the politicians had known in 1914 what was coming, would they have decided as they did? And I think the answer is very simple. They wouldn't. I'm just, going to, I'm just going to abuse my position as chairman, and just, Dom, to just put one thing to you. That at least, it may not be from a British point of view, but certainly from the point of view of your Polish or Czech or Slovak or from the Baltic states or any of these countries that um, came to being as a result of the First World War, um, they saw this as their one chance. You know, if, if it hadn't been for, for the First World War, there would never have been a Poland. Poland would be a lost kingdom. Well, there's a good story, isn't there, about a woman who was uh, born in... Uh, who, who spent mo- she spent all her life in the same place. She was sort of born in 1900 or something. She said, I was, I was born in Austria-Hungary. I grew up in, in part of Germany. I then lived in the Ukraine for a bit. Then I lived in the Soviet Union. Then I lived in Germany. Then I lived in the Soviet Union again. And I ended up, and I, you know, she spent the end of her life in Ukraine. She'd never left the same village. And when people said to her, well, which bit was the best? She said, oh, the first bit, the Habsburgs. <laughs> I can let... Yeah, well... Three cheers, three cheers to the Habsburgs. If, ha- if there are any Habsburgs here, well, they... <laughs> yeah, there was a half... Of the, I don't know whether you... Habs- are you a half Habsburg? Or just, no, what a, shame, what a shame. What a pity. Well, we, can, um, we, we, we pay homage to the absent, um, absent Habsburgs. But, Max, I just wonder if you want to just come back on... We're just going to wait until the um, result comes. The, the tellers are telling, telling, telling their fastest. Um, on, what, uh, on, on John's answer to your answer. I forgot which bit of it. <laughs> <laughs> he was. He was asking. He was, his argument was that um, he was in favour of Britain fighting if it was attacked, and that there were no plans in that either the Kaiser nor Hitler had attacked us. Um, I think John attack. defines um, British interest. Uh, well, first of all, of course, there's no hint of principle. There's no suggestion in anything. Um, John argues um, that there are issues beyond um, the crudest self-interest of the state of one's bank balance, to put it crudely, um, why one should go to war. Um, I would have thought that Defining interests, I mean, the same goes 1939. Well, I say John is at least consistent about this. He didn't think it was worth it. It was no more rational, in a way, for Britain to go to war to aid Poland in 1939 um, than it was to go to war to aid Belgium in 1914. But I happen to think that in both cases, hugely important principles were at stake, which it was right to fight for. If you're going to say, we will only act when we have the crudest national self-interest at stake, then I think we're going to be a pretty miserable sort of society. John, that... Yeah. And John, just to amplify Max's point, there must come a point where if the enti- it's not in Britain's interest to have the entire continent um, dominated by one country, which will then be out to get Britain. So sometimes I, you may want to forestall an attack before I it do, happens. I do love the bogeyman, that, that there will be a, history will end when somebody dominates the continent. For most of the history since and including the Roman Empire, somebody has dominated the continent at some point. History moves on, empires rise, empires fall. It's not going to be fixed forever. And the plain fact of the matter is that the line of thinking that Max exemplifies, we know is very dangerous. 
because it is precisely the line of thought that led us into World War II and that then, forever after, because appeasement was, was tarnished, that has led us into so many blooming wars since. Thank goodness after that Blair exploded this nonsense and that we're now in a situation where some mad Prime Minister stands up in the House of Commons and tries to tell us that it's in our interest to get involved in Syria. We have a House of Commons that's no longer enthralled to those patriotic legends. We have grown up as a nation and one of the things we need to do as a nation is to shrug off this version of our past that is pure govism. We don't want it and we don't need it. If if, if Michael Gove is here, I'll give him the floor for 30 seconds just to defend himself. I'll I'll floor him. Very good. Okay, so on that that note, and I hope that none of our NATO allies were listening um, listening to that, um, I'm going to give you the result of the debate. You'll remember that before the debate, it was 19% for the motion, 40% against, and 41% don't know. And the absolutely dramatic thing is the don't knows have gone down to 1%. And I think that's a a sign of a really good debate. So congratulations. And um, whoever the don't knows were, well, uh, I I congratulate you on your your fortitude and standing up to all these arguments. Um, But the really important point is that the um, the four um, people who said that uh, Britain should not have fought in the First World War have gone up from 19% to 27%. But the against, who do not believe in the motion, think Britain should have fought, have gone up from 40% to 62%. So I declare... If you'd like to support us in providing a home for passionate debate, deep discussion and answering the big questions that really matter, do consider becoming an Intelligence Squared Premium Podcast subscriber today. For just a small amount each month, you won't just be directly helping us continue to do what we do. You'll also be getting exclusive episodes each month, ad-free listening and early access to currently available via Apple Podcasts. You just need to hit the subscribe button. And if you're not an Apple user, don't worry, we're working on something for you too. Thanks for being a listener, supporting Intelligence Squared, and you're just one click away from getting some exclusive extras too.